0: I do want to welcome back Dr. Conrad Mbewe from Zambia, who's going to be bringing the second of our John Reed Miller lectures today. John Reed Miller was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Jackson and a powerful voice for evangelical Christianity in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, You may not know this, but uh, Dr. Miller was actually married Uh, His marriage to Betty was performed by uh, Harold Ockengay, who was the founding president of Fuller Seminary and who was the uh, pastor of the famous Park Street Church in Boston. And uh, Dr. Miller also served under Clarence McCartney, the famous evangelical Presbyterian minister who was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and uh, so he had quite a connection to the evangelicalism of the mid-20th century that was committed to the truth of the bible to the glorious doctrines of grace and to the proclamation of the gospel of the lord jesus christ and so it's very appropriate that dr conrad mbewe would be here to deliver the john reed biller lectures yesterday we heard some of his call to Uh, preaching to pastoral preaching. Today we're going to hear him address the demands of pastoral preaching. Thank you so much for leaving your flock. I know Dr. Mbewe yesterday when I was introducing all the things that he does for the kingdom said to me afterwards, I actually just consider myself a pastor. My main job is preaching the word of God week by week to my own congregation. That's what he's been doing since 1987 and that's why we invited him here. So we await your word, dear brother. Come and speak to us. Well,
1: it's a joy to be back with you today, and uh, let me uh, quickly ask you to to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter seven. Romans seven. We will be starting from there, and then proceed to look at a number of other passages and a number of other truths in the Bible. As we deal with the subject of the demands of pastoral preaching. If you are there, I will want you to just read with me from verse 7. I will go from verse 7 up to verse 12, Romans and chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, yet it is. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from law, sin lies dead. And good. As we've just heard yesterday, when we began to look at pastoral preaching, we began by looking at the nature of pastoral preaching. And what I did then was to show that it is the other foot or the other leg, and the first is evangelistic preaching. The Lord Jesus Christ commanded us to go into the world and first of all to challenge the world through the gospel and upon initiating them into the body of Christ, the visible body of Christ, that we are to then teach them to observe everything that the Lord has commanded. And so you have evangelistic preaching on the one hand and pastoral preaching on the other. We also encapsulated pastoral preaching in some picture language, and that was the word shepherding. And I mentioned the fact that if you could only summarize everything you have to do in pastoral preaching under this one pregnant word, shepherding, you will capture something not only of its meaning but also of its heart. And then we ended by looking at a number of goals that you seek to, to realize in the lives of God's people through pastoral preaching. And I will not take time on that. Today, we're moving on, at least in this first session, on the demands of pastoral preaching. And what I have in mind as I speak about the demands of pastoral preaching is basically what it will take for you to defeat the falls that you are up against as you seek to build a people for God. What is it that it will take so that you may be equal to the task? In order for us to deal with what it will take, we need to first of all answer the question, what is the primary foe or the primary enemy that you will enter into hand-to-hand combat with as you seek to minister to the people of God? The normal breakdown of the, the, the enemies of the people of God would comprise three and I'm sure you should know them by now, the world, the flesh, and the devil. However, there is very little that you can do about the devil. He continues as a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. And until God finally gets rid of him, Upon the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, He will continue roaming the earth. There's also very little that you can do with respect to the fallen world because it still remains in the grip of the evil one, it still continues on its downward spiral. But where you have the task is with respect to the flesh. In other words, the fallen hearts, especially of those who consequently come, as it were, out of the world, out of the community of the world, the society, and enter to become the people of God. That's where our task is. It is to seek to deal with the fallen human hearts so that they might move away from being idol worshipers to become true worshipers of the living God. That they might find in the Lord Jesus Christ the altogether loving one so that in relating to him, And relating to the world through him, they may indeed live the kind of godly lives that will be pleasing to God. That's really where the task primary lies. That's where the chief enemy you will be addressing is. And that's where I want us to begin, giving the very reason why I brought you to Romans and chapter 7. Because you will notice in the passage that we have read that this fallen and foul power that you have to contend with is being referred to as sin, S-I-N. And when the Apostle Paul in this passage refers to the word sin, He is not so much thinking in terms of the sins that are committed, although that will come through in this chapter, but he's referring to a fallen power, a foul power that causes you to go in the anti-God direction. He's referring to it the way in which we speak in terms of, for instance, the the law of gravity or the power of gravity. You may have it in your heart to jump into the air and perhaps even jump a meter or two into the air. But I'm pretty sure you know that no sooner do you leave the ground then something is pulling you downwards. Something is bringing your feet back to solid earth. It is that power that we have named gravity. It is the same with respect to this foul power that is referred to here as sin. The Apostle Paul says, If it wasn't for the law at the end of, rather in the middle of verse 7, if it wasn't for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have experienced, or at least been conscious of the fact that there is something that pulls me in the wrong direction. But when God said, do this, and then I began attempting to do this, I began to feel something pulling me in the opposite direction. So when I heard you shall not covet, sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Well, that's the power that you must recognize as a preacher you have to deal with. When men and women are converted to Christ, the reign, the rule of this foul power is brought to an end. It's broken, but its presence remains. And all the tears that it often produces in the hearts of God's people. For as Paul would say later on here, I find in verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in the inner being, but I see in my members another law. A foul power that is at work in the members of my body. The good news is that through pastoral preaching, God has provided supernatural power to deal with his foul power that dwells in believers. It is through the preaching of the word And also through prayer. I want us to quickly look at these two. And I'm hoping that as you come to terms with this, you may begin to realize that if there is anything that is a demand upon you, it is to learn to, as it were, wield the sword of the Spirit so that sin might be. Killed as it were, not only in your own heart, but also in the hearts of believers. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians and chapter 10. 2 Corinthians and chapter 10. If there is a church that was in a mess, it was the Corinthian church. Anything and everything that you can think about that this foul power produces in human beings was there in that church. Talk about fights among them. Fights related to the preachers that God had given to them. Fights related to the very gifts that God had given them. Fights related to everything else that was causing them to drag one another into law courts. Talk about sexual immorality to the level of one sleeping with, most likely, a stepmother. They were defrauding one another, gossiping and slandering one another. What did Paul do? Did he write them off? Did he say, well, look, let's, let's, let's forget. There's hardly any salvation that has taken place here. No. He sought to deal with these issues in a pastoral way, the equivalent of pastoral preaching. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'll just read verse 4 to verse 6. He says there, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That's what he did. He simply addressed these issues as one speaking the very words of God. And the word of God itself did the work. That's what he did. The word of God did the work. Now clearly in chapter 10 of Second Corinthians, he's referring to all that mess that took place in Corinth and how he was seeking to address them. But remember that even in bringing these people evangelistically to Christ, it is this same word that crushed the stronghold of sin in their lives. He had said in the first epistle and chapter two, look at the way he put it. And when I came to you brothers, and I rather, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. but in the power of God. In other words, when he entered into Corinth, he knew that mere storytelling, weaving together nice words, philosophical thoughts, would not defeat the sin, that foul power that was resident in the hearts of the Corinthians. And so he simply proclaimed God's word, Christ and him crucified. Well, what Paul is saying when he writes to them is that he hasn't changed his arsenal. He hasn't changed his weapon. It is still the proclamation of the word of God because that is the power of God. So that even later, these disciples in Corinth, as they look back, would realize that, you know what? We are a product not of Paul and his ability. We are a product of the power of God. And Friends, that's the work that we have. It is to recognize that ultimately, God's word must do the job, that it alone has that power. No wonder in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul refers to the word of God as the sword of the spirit, the weapon of the spirit, the grenade in the hands of the spirit that he thrusts as it were into the citadels of sin and blows asunder the stronghold that is there. And all I am saying is that we need to renew our faith in the God of that word and in the word of that That's what it demands for us to do God's work in God's way. To be a person who plays as it were a one-string banjo throughout your ministry, proclaiming the word of God and then seeing what that word is able to do as it fashions a people for God over the years. Why am I emphasizing this? A lot, at least back home, of what is called preaching, maybe called preaching, but it is certainly not preaching the word of God. It's mainly motivational speaking. And often, A verse somewhere in the Bible is tortured out of its context and begins to say what the Holy Spirit was not really saying. But it's a good anchor on which the wise guy says very nice, plausible things. But the lives of the people are not being changed sin continues to reign supreme, the foul stench from the lives of the people can be smelt everywhere, even reaching the newspapers of the land. The error, the fatal error is in thinking that we can in fact produce a nice life out of these foul, fallen hearts by simply giving nice words to them. And friends, often, if I can use a picture back home, it is like shooting peas at a charging lion. Completely useless. It brings in the crowds, no doubt, but it does not build a people for God. If pastoral preaching is going to produce a people for God, there must be a resolve in the heart of the preacher who occupies the pulpit regularly that all I have to do is fire away the word of God and watch it do its work. There's a second aspect to this that I must quickly run to, and it is that of prayer, that of prayer. When the apostles were wrestling with a growing church in Jerusalem and wrestling with its implications with respect to the social needs of the church, in Acts chapter 6, they finally decided they were going to remove everything else from their shoulders except two. Let's quickly turn there. Acts chapter 2, I mean chapter 6, sorry, beginning with verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12, referring to the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, listen to this, it is not right that that we should give up preaching the word of God to save tables. We are not going to risk anything with respect to the preaching of the word. That is a demand upon our lives we will not let go of, not even to meet your social needs. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. And then verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. To prayer, and to the ministry of the word. These two go together. Prayer, and the ministry of the word. In prayer, what we are essentially doing, is pleading with God, to own his word in the lives of God's people. It is essentially what Jesus gave to us when he taught us what we today refer to as the Lord's Prayer. You will remember that the phrasing of it was Your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. Now it is being done in the hearts and lives of the people on earth. So what you are doing when you are thus praying is you are pleading with God the Holy Spirit now, now, now to own his word. And cause that a people who once loved sin and loved the world may now with equal tenacity love the God who is indeed there. Save Him and truly worship Him. Brethren, we must not only be preachers of the word, but we must be. Men of prayer. Men of prayer. Men of prayer. The evil one will do everything to keep you so busy that you don't pray. That all you do is prepare fine sermons, exegetically correct, and then go on to deliver them bereft of a sense of God in your preaching. Oh, that we may not allow him to do that to us, but that you may do everything in your power as well to jealously guard those moments for prayer. Later on, this afternoon, I will be back to this subject when I will be dealing with the subject of the power of pastoral preaching. And you can be sure that when we come to this subject, I will as it were park there, I will remove the keys from the ignition and I will throw them away. Because not many years hence, the temptation for you to reduce on prayer will be high. A big temptation. And you need to be convinced now that it is not an optional extra. So, for those of you who will be here this afternoon, see you then. Let's move on to another part. The demand of pastoral preaching. We've said there must be faithfulness with respect to the word, faithfulness with respect to prayer, all kinds of prayer, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6. There's another aspect that we must not take for granted, and it is the human element, the human element. After all, preaching is Communication. You are conveying truth. There are two passages of scripture that I'll just quickly take you to. Uh, the first is 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm particularly interested in verse 4. In verse 4, the apostle there says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Notice the emphasis of the apostle Paul. That this secret work of God by which he changes human hearts from inside out was evident there. It was evident in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. But I want you to notice what he has taken for granted. And it is this, the gospel coming In word. In word. What he's saying is, yes, there is the word, but if it wasn't for God acting upon that word, that word would be useless. But let's remember, there is the actual communication of the word itself. Or, as he puts it in 2 Corinthians, um, the famous chapter four of Second Corinthians. He puts it this way: in verse two, verse two, "But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. but, and here is it is by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then he says in verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying there? He's saying, yes, we have refused to use trickery. But one thing we do is to commend the truth to human consciences. And then God, in a supernatural way, takes that truth and uses it to open blind eyes and bring about true spiritual life. It is this open statement of the truth, this communicative element that I am speaking about as a real demand upon us as preachers. On the human side, one major demand that is upon us is learning how to use words words to communicate God's truth. Yesterday, I used the example of what you people here call soccer. <laughs> we call it football back home. As an illustration, I want to go back and use it again because it's the favorite game back home. I say to people from number one up to number 99, it is soccer, 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 soccer. And then you might have cricket or rugby or something under number 100. But it's, that's the game that we have back home. And growing up in the village and so on, the hero among us was always the guy who owned the football. What would happen is that he would be the one who would dictate when we would play. By simply saying, well, guys, tomorrow afternoon I'm free, so let's meet in the football pitch. And we'd all come out and play with him. To tackle him badly, he just picked up the ball, put it in his and walked home. <laughs> and you know what that meant? The football was over. Similarly, if in the course of the week you ended up with an argument with him, all that happened is on the actual day you're playing football, he would have the ball in his armpit and he would look at everybody and say, this guy ain't playing this afternoon. And if you insist he plays, too bad. There's no football. So we all wanted to be in a good relationship with this guy. Because football is about the ball. Well, friends, preaching is about communicating in words. It doesn't matter what else you are able to do. If you are not able to communicate with words, to to communicate intelligently, to communicate interestingly, to communicate relevantly, this book dies in your hands. A ministry that ought to enrich the lives of God's people falls flat in front of you. So one of the tasks that we definitely have is the task of mastering the use of words. And one of the tasks that all of us have to do is to learn, if you are going to have a meaningfully lasting ministry preaching largely to the same people, it is to learn to use words in a way that keeps those people coming. You see, an evangelistic preacher has the advantage of the fact that he can have about five to ten sermons that he preaches and keeps repeating everywhere. And for the next 50 years, as he continues repeating them, people will continue coming in droves to hear him the moment you begin to sound like a clanging cymbal, it doesn't matter where you start from. People can tell where you're going. Just know you've killed your own preaching ministry. And many times when people's pastorates come to an end, it's because the people in the pew feel as though they've heard it all from you. It doesn't matter where you're starting from. It's exactly the same thing ultimately you're speaking about. And sadly, often, in a very boring way. Here's a task, a demand that is upon us as pastoral preachers. is to learn to use words. One of the ways in which you do it is simply by continuing to be a student. Continuing to read and read and read. You stop reading, your pastoral preaching ministry has come to an end. Yes, the new people coming into church, yes, they will think, wow, It's worth coming to listen to. But before long, they realize that there's emptiness there. So I want to plead, learn to use words, to master the use of words. May I suggest that another way, apart from reading, is simply that of listening to other preachers not just for your edification, that's important, but also simply learning how do they manage sometimes to deal with very difficult passages, but to so reduce them to the point where even the lambs in the congregation are able to profit. Listen to those who are Successful pastoral preachers. Let me add here that one of the occupational hazards of being studious is that in the process, you start conveying God's truth at a level where again, using picture language from home, only giraffes are able to feed. It's a real danger. And it's something we are not conscious of because we are swimming in those words. But remember, this is pastoral preaching. It has to be at a level where even the lambs are able to enjoy the full meal, while at the same time the giraffes are also enjoying their own diet. It's crucial that you learn to do that. And as I said, listen to those who are able to do so and seek to imitate them. May I also quickly add two aspects to this? I mentioned a word earlier that you may have missed, and it is the word preaching relevantly. Preaching relevantly. In other words, God's people must feel that this is for them in today's world, in the world where they are. That's not going to come easy. Let me assure you of that. I belong to the context that is normally referred to as reformed back home. So when I take this stone and throw it at reformed people, I'm throwing it at myself. And it is this, that a lot of reformed people preach as if they are preaching to people who lived two centuries ago. There's hardly anything that is actually touching today's world. The lives that these people filling the pews are coming from, the issues they are wrestling with, That's a weakness. It's a weakness. God's people don't just come to appreciate faithful exegesis. They also come to say, Lord, what are you saying to me today? What are you saying? Therefore, as a preacher, it's crucial that you must have one eye in the word of God and the other eye in the world. You must. John Stott used to refer to this as double listening. One ear in the word and in the world of the word the history of the word, the culture of the word, the redemptive narrative of the world, the other ear in the current affairs, the other ear in the culture in which I am ministering, the other ear in the way in which the human hearts in front of me are responding to these realities. You must have the two together. That's a major demand for an ongoing, successful, powerful, pastoral preaching ministry. Time is not with me. Let me wrap up. And in wrapping up, all I'm saying is be balanced. Be balanced. There is the supernatural. God's word. God speaking through his word. And you seeking him in prayer. Lord, I need you. Lord, speak through me. Lord, break human hearts through your word. Melt them. Bring God's people closer to you. There is the supernatural element. And those of us who are evangelicals should know that. Be balanced. Recognize that there is also the human element. I am communicating words. I'm communicating ideas. I'm communicating and should communicate. Clearly, I should communicate relevantly. Let God's people go home saying, I've not only understood the word of God, but I've also understood what changes I need to make in my life so that God is honored in me. That won't come easy. It's a lifelong school. But I want to assure you, if you can rise to the demands of pastoral preaching in this way, God will give you a ministry among God's people that will live. An impact. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God, thank you for the inestimable privilege you've given us to be heralds of your word. And especially to be heralds of your word in the household of God. We realize we've got a formidable foe in the sin that is still resident in human hearts. Even in the hearts of those whom you have saved. But Lord, we thank you for the instrument you've given us. Help us to have faith in the power of God, in the word of God. It also help us not to obstruct this word by a failure to use its most primary means, words. Father, help us to teach clearly, help us to teach relevantly so that God's people may be truly profited while we remain the primary instrument in your hands for their sanctification. We plead for this in Jesus' name. Amen.